This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When Hamas struck Israel with their deadly and barbaric terrorist attacks on October 7th, there was an outcry of support from around the world. Even countries that didn't normally back the Jewish state offered condolences to absolutely back them in what they planned to do. But since then, things have changed. Many nations have backed away. And of course, there has been the outpouring of support for the Hamas side in this. We're not seeing pro-Palestinian marches in the streets of Toronto or Vancouver or elsewhere. We're seeing pro-Hamas demonstrations. And that is what I myself have seen, like on October 9th, just days after the attack. Well, today on the Full Comment podcast, we're going to look at how Israel is defending itself, not in the war effort, but on the media front, in getting its story out there. Elon Levy has become the face of Israel to the English-speaking international media since shortly after October 7th. He's popped up on uh, TV stations around the world. He's done radio interviews, print interviews, and has become the person to go to for what is happening. And he agreed to take some time to speak with us. Elon, thanks for the time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I, you... Uh, you were a spokesperson in the Israeli government before, but in a much different role. Um, what has it been like over the past several months having to be the, the name, the face, the voice that defends Israel to the international English-speaking media? It's actually my first time as a government spokesman. I was President Herzog's international media advisor for the first two years of his presidency. But in Israel, the president is the equivalent of the king or the governor general in Canada. He plays a largely ceremonial role, a very different branch of government from the executive. And when the October 7 massacre happened, I was a private citizen, not involved either with the president or with the government of Israel. And such was the chaos in the first week of the war, such was the civilian mobilization when everyone scrambled to do whatever they could, understanding that we had to win this war and bring back the hostages, that in a week I found myself putting on a suit and tie. I've taken it off because it's late here in Tel Aviv and running and suddenly getting recruited as a spokesman for the government. Uh, yesterday, I crossed a rather grim milestone. I've now given as many international media interviews as hostages Hamas took on October 7th, one for every 253 hostages. And it's been a roller coaster. It is not easy to make the case for Israel because the media battle is not an even playing ground. I have well, it, against me. That, that's what I, I wanted what? to ask you because in the, in, you know, on October 7th, and at least for the first few days after, there was a lot of sympathy for Israel. Although I can tell you here in the streets of Toronto, I witnessed the, um, pro-Palestinian, 
pro-Hamas protests come out immediately. I think October 9th was the first major one that I saw. Um, but what was the, the shift like in terms of both media, but also countries? Because some countries, like, like Canada, started backing away. Yeah, we had sympathy, but the massacre also set off a wave of jubilation and celebration around the world as the anti-Semites wriggled out of their holes like termites out of woodwork. And it's been really horrific to see how that massacre gave people excitement. And that excitement has morphed into the protests we're seeing around the world that have been calling on Israel to essentially abandon the hostages and leave Hamas in place after the October 7 massacre. And people are forgetting about the massacre. I can't tell you how many interviews I've given where I'm waiting to go on air for 10 minutes and there isn't a single mention of the fact that on October 7th, Hamas brutally massacred 1,200 people. It incinerated families alive. It committed barbaric acts of gang rape. And that's the reason that we are in this war. We're in this war because Hamas invaded Israel by air, land, and sea sending in death squads to murder as many people as possible, as brutally as possible. Now, for us, it's been very clear from day one why we are fighting. We are fighting to bring the Hamas terror regime to justice so it can never perpetrate an atrocity like that, as it tells us it wants to do again and again, and to bring back the hostages. And to us, it's obvious that we are fighting for humanity on the front lines of humanity, and that anything short of a total Israeli victory, anything that would leave Hamas on its feet, would be a terrible danger to the whole free world. Because the message it would send to terrorists is you can perpetrate brutal atrocities, hide behind civilians, and get away with it. So I think we feel disappointed. We feel disappointed that certain friends and allies haven't been more full-throated in their support of our right and obligation to defend our people. You know, I saw, for example, the Prime Minister of Canada giving a joint statement with the Prime Ministers of Australia and New Zealand, in which they said that Hamas must lay down its arms, release the hostages, and there is no room for it in a post-war Gaza. But the question then is, who is going to make Hamas lay down its arms? Because it doesn't want to surrender. The option of surrender has been on the table since the beginning, and it wants to continue fighting down to the last person. So that's why we find ourselves having to fight to destroy Hamas, because otherwise it will do this again, as it tells us it wants to do again and again. And we really would prefer to have more international support as we do that. I'll ask you specifically about Justin Trudeau, because there was that famous statement and then a, a Twitter thread from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. But I want to play a quick clip first. And this was the one I, I think you told me when I mentioned Tel Aviv that this is the one that became... It turned you into a meme because the look on your face when you heard the woman say that obviously Israel doesn't value the lives of Palestinian hostages because you were giving up three of them for every one Israeli hostage uh, you were getting back, uh, or sorry, Palestinian prisoners. I, we're going to play that clip so people can see and hear it. And then I, I want to ask you about that kind of media pushback. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 Hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comp comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? 
That is an astonishing accusation. So, I mean, your eyes there, uh, the, the look of horror on your face was quite something. You could hear the um, disdain in your voice. But is that a common element with your media interviews? Oh, absolutely. The, the reason that that moment struck a nerve inside Israel and made me a celebrity in this country overnight was that it reflected the common feeling that sometimes it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we say. People are always going to twist it against us and use even the evidence of our morality to bash us with. The fact that we are willing to put three violent criminals back on the street to get every one stolen child back somehow is evidence that we are the immoral ones. And that's a pattern that we're finding all the time in the international media and from international institutions, that it doesn't matter what Israel does, it's always in the wrong. Hamas is trying to use civilians as human shields. It built a tunnel network one and a half times the length of the London underground, with tunnel shafts poking out under schools, hospitals, and mosques. Now, we want to get to those military targets. So we want civilians to get out of the way. That is what a responsible, law-abiding army does. It gives civilians time to evacuate a war zone where terrorists are trying to use them as human shields. And instead, we have a chorus of an alphabet soup of UN agencies accusing Israel of forcible displacement for doing what it is supposed to do under international law and give civilians warning in order to evacuate areas that are going to get dangerous because terrorists are trying to hide behind them. And that's one of the immensely frustrating things, being a spokesman for Israel, that sometimes it really does not matter what we do or say. People are going to perform all sorts of intellectual somersaults to make us out to be the bad guys when we are simply exercising our natural, inherent, inalienable right and duty to defend our people in the wake of the bloodiest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust and the deadliest terror attack in world history after 9-11. It was back in November, I think it was about five, six weeks after October 7th, when Justin Trudeau made his impassioned, you know, he went full drama teacher mode and made his impassioned speech for Israel to stop killing babies and that going after a hospital is wrong. Uh, I mean, we knew the hospital bombing story was a, a hoax by then. And he should have known that the Al-Shifa hospital, which was under siege then, had become a Hamas headquarters, which has since been proven. There are whole areas of the hospital that no one could go. So uh, the response from Netanyahu was swift. And I know sometimes Canadians will think, well, we don't matter on the international stage, especially now under Trudeau. But when I we had a background briefing in Jerusalem with uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials, and they said that Canada does matter. And of course, Canada has the fourth largest Jewish population in the world after Israel, the U.S. and France. So it, it should matter. It, it, so what was the reaction like? I mean, are people sadly disappointed with Canada or, or at least with Prime Minister Trudeau? Of course, Canada matters. It's a prosperous liberal democracy, which has historically stood by Israel's side. And we know that we're defending ourselves against bloodthirsty terrorists who would have no compunctions about exercising the same sort of violence on the streets of Canada and that terrorists will emerge emboldened and encouraged if Hamas survives this war and we don't finish the job. 
And so we expect all of our allies, especially the liberal democracies, to understand that we are doing exactly what they would do in similar circumstances if, God forbid, their people were subjected to such barbaric atrocities. And let's remember it was in 2014 that 86 nations banded together to destroy ISIS. They said, we can't destroy an idea, but we can remove it from power. An Islamic State should not control vast swathes of territory in Iraq and in Syria in order to perpetrate attacks against the rest of the world. And by the time that that alliance of 86 nations was done with Raqqa and with Mosul rooting out ISIS, those cities looked a lot like what Gaza looks like today. And you were fighting not against an enemy that was firing rockets at Canadian cities, and not against an enemy that was holding 253 Canadians hostage, and not against an enemy that had spent 16 years embedding itself deliberately under civilian facilities in a sick strategy to try to render its sites immune from attack. And so we know that other countries that have participated in counterterrorism wars understand how difficult that is and understand the unique challenge that Israel is facing in an urban battlefield that no country in the world has ever had to deal with. And we would expect more solidarity and understanding from our allies that know that we don't target civilians, that know that the only reason, tragically, heartbreakingly, that people have been killed since October 7th is that Hamas launched a war. And Hamas decided to fight that war from fortifications underneath urban areas. And that no one else needs to be hurt if Hamas surrenders, releases the hostages, lays down its arms, and turns over its war criminals. And that is the message that we expect to hear from our allies. The best and swiftest way to bring this war to a conclusion is to pressure Hamas to surrender. Because a terrorist army that burns whole families alive should not emerge unscathed, and it certainly should not do so, thinking it has the support of the international community and of liberal democracies. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you remember that Canada started um, on as part of that coalition against ISIS. But sadly, under Justin Trudeau, we withdrew our planes. We, we, you know, we, we became a non-active part of that alliance. Um, and m maybe that's a, a sign of why he is the way he is when it comes to Israel. Uh, seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth. There was a lot of eye rolling that I'm well, not I don't used know. to. When I said I was from Canada, people would roll their eyes about Trudeau. I, I don't know specifically about the prime minister, and I don't want to um, try to analyze his positions, and that's not for me to do so. But I certainly understand why people in Canada would take a very different perspective from people in Israel, because Canada is vast. It's enormous. It's surrounded on either side by vast ocean, by, in the north by the Arctic, and in the south by the greatest superpower in the world, its close ally, the United States. And Israel is not that. Tel Aviv is only an hour's drive away from Gaza. Mm -hmm. If you take out the West Bank, Israel is only nine miles wide at its narrowest. It's nothing. We have a very different sense of proportion and scale and how close the threat is. The threat is not all the way on the other side of the world. It is literally our backyard. And therefore, the reason that we have to finish off Hamas is because we don't have a room for maneuver 
It's not like we can leave Hamas in place and then retreat to vast prairies surrounded by ocean, the United States and the Arctic. We have to live in this region. And we need this region to be safe for the liberal democracy that we are trying to sustain and maintain here. And our civilians who were brutally slaughtered and abducted on October 7th cannot go back to homes that are only meters away from the Gaza Strip as long as the Hamas terror regime is their neighbor. And that's why if it won't lay down its arms, as Canada, Australia and New Zealand have politely asked it to do, we are going to have to force it to do so because we have no choice. We'll take a quick break here, Elon. And when we come back, I, I want to ask you about UNRWA and about the, the war. Is Israel making progress? More with Elon Levy when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. UNRWA, of course, has been exposed through all of this. And uh, Elon, is one of the most amazing things. You know, I've been writing about UNRWA for a decade or more. Uh, saying that we shouldn't be funding them. I pushed back against the, the Trudeau government when they reinstated UNRWA funding, saying, oh, we have special right. assurances, don't worry. Um, but it was fascinating when I was in Israel to hear from everyone how much UNRWA was a part of the problem, and a bigger part than I even understood. The, the fact that Hamas was, had a, a data center under the UNRWA headquarters, and the head of this oh, UN yes. organization says, we didn't know, just shows that, the, uh, you know, it, it's either uh, lying or sustained um, willful ignorance. Where would you come down? Oh, they're lying. They're lying when they say that they only heard about this from the media because Mr. Lazzarini was invited by Israeli authorities to tour the Hamas server farm underneath the UNRWA compound in Gaza City, and he ignored that letter. UNRWA is a Hamas front. It's a Hamas front because it is an agency that exists to perpetuate the Palestinians' demands to resettle in Israel as if they're still refugees from a war nearly 80 years ago. It's a Hamas front because of the way that its schools indoctrinate Palestinian children. It's a Hamas front because it hires terrorists, terrorists who took part in the October 7 massacre, because it allows Hamas to build tunnels inside its schools and its facilities. And it is absolutely part of the problem. Now, UNRWA says that it is investigating these allegations. But just 10 years ago, and this is something the New York Times reported today, when UNRWA tried to investigate suspicions that some of its members were implicated with Hamas. Its legal officer in Gaza received death threats. He received the delivery of a funeral bouquet at the UNRWA headquarters in Gaza, and then he was sent a live grenade with the pin inside it. And UNRWA had to evacuate him from Gaza to Jerusalem for his own safety. UNRWA had to evacuate another Gaza director, after he made the mistake on TV of saying that Israeli airstrikes were actually very precise. 
So look, it's quite possible that Unra didn't know that there was this vast server farm underneath its headquarters. Actually, no, of course not. Running off their electricity. and exactly, exactly, because because the the UNRWA, the Hamas data farm in the basement was leaching electricity from the UNRWA facility above ground. Do you think they never checked their electricity bill or did they simply pass it on to Canada to pay? And the Wall Street Journal had a very telling quote just this week about how in 2014, part of the parking lot of the UNRWA compound began to sink, probably because of Hamas tunnels. And it says, it quotes a senior official there who says, everyone knew why, but no one said it out loud. Now, look, maybe, maybe you want to claim that UNRWA didn't know how many of its members, how many of its staff were Hamas members. But it needs to be honest that the reason it was never able to get to the bottom of that is that whenever someone tried to investigate it, they received death threats and were hounded out of Gaza. And so it's covering up for Hamas and it's covering up the fact that it's covering up for Hamas. And so it's not surprising that Philippe Lazzarini, his allegations and accusations against Israel have become increasingly hysterical as he needs to cover up the mounting evidence of how his organization has been complicit with, collaborating with, and in cahoots with the terrorist organization that perpetrated the October 7 massacre using money very kindly donated by the Canadian taxpayer. The, uh, the, the regular claims that, um, okay, well, we, we've paused funding for UNRWA. UNRWA. Unfortunately, Canada sent advance payments and then hit the pause button. But we hear, well, Aid needs to get in through other agencies then. And uh, Israel is throttling the aid. Aid can't get through. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen the, the, the truck counts. And it's massive. Aid is being delivered. And just like prior to the war, it is often being stolen by Hamas. So we give food, fuel, all these things to the Palestinian people so that they can survive in the war. And Hamas takes them. You asked me about the challenges of being an Israeli spokesman. Mm -hmm. I go on TV. I present facts. I have the Palestinians, the United Nations, and a whole alphabet soup of human rights organizations calling me a liar. And so the media end up going with the louder, stronger voice. Here are the facts. Israel has placed no restrictions on the amount of food, water, medical equipment, or shelter equipment that can enter the Gaza Strip. We have excess capacity at the Israeli crossings to more than double the amount of aid if countries want to send it. The problem is the UN agencies on the ground are struggling to distribute aid at the pace Israel is facilitating it. That's why the UN has asked us to close the crossing on Saturdays, because they still have to clear the backlog. And the reason is that UNRWA is not an aid agency. Most of its staff are teachers. It doesn't have the experience of doing disaster relief in emergency zones like other UN agencies. It's failing to distribute aid and it is deflecting blame onto Israel to cover up for its own failure because the easiest thing in the world is to scapegoat Israel. And it's worse than that because we know that up to 60% of the aid that is entering Gaza is being hijacked by Hamas. And the videos of Hamas gunmen on top of aid trucks in Gaza 
have been widely circulating online. Everyone in Gaza knows it. That's why you see civilians trying to loot aid trucks, because they know Hamas is going to steal the aid. And the agencies that are supposed to look out for them are doing nothing about it. And we think it's really heartbreaking that as we are going after the monsters who perpetrated the October 7 massacre, civilians in Gaza have been abandoned to aid agencies that are complicit with Hamas. We think they should get the aid they need without Hamas being able to steal it. And that's why it's time to dismantle UNRWA, to stop funding it, not only because it covers up for terrorists, not only because it indoctrinates Palestinian children, but because it is turning a blind eye to Hamas stealing aid. And there are other UN agencies in the world that distribute aid. It's not like UNRWA is distributing aid in the Congo and every other disaster zone in the world. The UN knows how to distribute aid. UNICEF, World Food Programme, etc., etc. It's time to activate them in Gaza and ditch the aid organization, the, the, the organization that is a front for Hamas and has literally been covering up for Hamas, literally as in its headquarters are literally 20 meters above the nerve center of Hamas's intelligence facilities and the Soho farm that it kept underneath UNRWA's headquarters, leaching electricity from UNRWA's headquarters, using the money that it received from well-meaning governments that think that they're supporting humanitarian causes when they're simply sending electricity straight into the intelligence infrastructure that perpetrated the October 7 massacre. I remember speaking to a, a retired IDF um, officer who had uh, been active in Gaza, and they kept saying, well, we need more electricity and we need more water. Well, why? And it's because everyone wanted them to turn a blind eye to the fact that it was being pilfered by Hamas. But then I want to ask you about the journalists, because we, we hear journalists yeah. killed and journalists attacked. And then we keep finding out that, well, they were riding with um, Hamas um, soldiers or they were active. It was just a report about one of the Al Jazeera uh, reporters, he's active in an, art an artillery brigade of Hamas. How many of these uh, journalists have been uncovered? They're legion. There's a famous list from the International Committee for the Protection of Journalists that claims, talks about the number of journalists killed. Just do control F and look how many are working for Hamas affiliated media. These are not journalists. These are Hamas content creators. These are paid up members of the Hamas propaganda unit. And that's not to mention the others who aren't officially working for Hamas media, but have also been engaging in terrorist activities. And I think some people around the world find it difficult to understand that some people in Gaza will wear a press vest, but they're terrorists. Some people in Gaza will pass themselves off as doctors, but they're members of the Isaldin al-Qassam brigades. That was the case in the Kamal Adwan hospital, where the director of the hospital admitted in interrogation that he had been recruited to Hamas at the rank of brigadier general. And there were over a dozen staff in the hospital who were paid up members of the Hamas military wing. Okay, so hiding in hospitals, hiding in schools, where are the cries that Hamas is committing war crimes because I perpetually, constantly hear that Israel is uh, uh, conducting war crimes. Where are the cries that Hamas is doing that? None, none. And that is why our situation in the field of international public opinion is 
let me put it diplomatically, facing challenges. Because when the director of the World Health Organization cannot bring himself to condemn Hamas for militarizing hospitals and converting hospitals into military bases, he gives the impression that Israel is, what, taking pot shots at hospitals for fun? When the reality is that we are conducting targeted raids against terrorists who are trying to hide in hospitals. And international law does not give you immunity as a terrorist just because you are hiding in the basement of a hospital. International law is very clear that exploiting protected facilities for military purposes can void their protected status. Unfortunately, too many actors around the world have picked a side in this war. And it's not the side of the victims of the October 7 massacre. When they fail to condemn Hamas's human shield strategy, they make themselves complicit with Hamas's human shield strategy. They tell terrorists that if they hide behind enough civilians, the world will swoop in to save them. And democratic countries have no right to defend themselves against their atrocities. And to that extent, some of them have blood on their hands. I want to end by asking you, um, I know that you're not a spokesman for the IDF, uh, spokesman for the government. The government does, the IDF does report to the government. And you're also someone living through all of this. How is the war going? Closing in on 600 soldiers dead, I believe. And it was a horrible day where more than 20 died while I was uh, visiting when I was in Tel Aviv. Is is the war going to come to an end shortly? Is there uh, you know a chance that as they get close to the the southern end towards Rafa that um, Hamas will be taken out of power? There's a misleading impression I see sometimes in the international media that this campaign is failing to achieve its objectives. And the fact that we still have 136 hostages trapped in the Hamas terror dungeons is a source of intense pain and frustration for all of us. But in terms of destroying Hamas, the campaign has far exceeded expectations. Hamas started this war with 24 battalions. We've now shattered 18 of them. It means there are men who are still fighting, but they're not organized in a unified command structure like they were at the start. 18 Hamas battalions have been smashed. Another two are on their last legs in Khan Yunis, and that leaves four in Rafah. The reason that we are approaching a ground offensive in Rafah is that we've managed to dismantle the whole of Hamas's military machine all the way through the Gaza Strip, right until the area of the border with Egypt. We have killed about 12,000 Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists. We have killed, wounded, or apprehended over half of Hamas's fighting force. Its military machine is collapsing. And so we're going to be very close to the stage of destroying Hamas and then ensuring demilitarization. And that's going to be a challenge to make sure that they can't regroup and rebuild themselves. And that is where we will need also support from the international community that must understand that if the destruction of Hamas is followed by Hamas rearming with an appetite for vengeance, the next October 7 massacre is only going to be around the corner. And we have to make sure that the Gaza Strip is never again going to pose a threat to the people of Israel, not as it was on October 7th, and not as it was over the previous 20 years of rocket fire. Rocket fire when 
In Tel Aviv, we had a minute and a half to run for shelter. But the people in the villages that were cleansed on October 7th had five, 10 seconds to run for shelter. We somehow treated that as normal because the world didn't want us to finish the job. But we're going to finish the job now with Hamas, doing everything we can to try to keep civilians safe from Hamas. But we're going to finish the job with Hamas because enough is enough. And we cannot allow this terror threat by this proxy of Iran to continue to menace us on our borders any longer. It's interesting as you get closer to uh, that southern border at Rafah with Egypt, um, there is no clamoring call for Egypt to open the gates and um, you know, take in thousands of refugees. We're about to take in a thousand people from Gaza here in Canada, uh, which has alarmed some people I know. The, the neighboring countries, I'm not hearing about Egypt or Jordan or other neighboring countries saying, yes, we will take in refugees from Gaza. Am I missing it or is it just not happening? No, I think the people of Gaza have been really let down and abandoned by people they thought were their friends uh, who seem to be suggesting that they don't have a right of asylum from a war zone where terrorists are trying to use them as human shields. Our policy throughout the war has been that we should evacuate them to safe zones inside the Gaza Strip. And it's important to emphasize that point. In every, on every occasion that the Israeli army has moved forward on a ground offensive, our troops have secured humanitarian corridors for people to get out of the way and remain in Gaza, in areas where terrorists cannot use them as human shields, they were let down, unfortunately, by the aid agencies that have been resisting our efforts to get civilians to safe zones and have been funneling them into Hamas strongholds instead. Ask yourself, why are one and a half million Gazans reportedly now in Rafah instead of the safe zone that we designated at the start of the war? Because the Foreign international aid agencies funneled them into Hamas strongholds where Hamas can use them as human shields. And we think they deserve much better. Uh, and we think that the foreign aid agencies now have a choice to make, really, as we advance on the last four Hamas battalions in Rafah. Do they want to save Hamas or save Palestinian civilians? Do they want to resist our efforts to evacuate civilians to safety or do they want to work with us to get civilians to places where Hamas cannot use them as human shields? And if they decide to resist our efforts to get civilians to safety and to keep them in a Hamas stronghold where Hamas is using them as human shields, then the suffering will be unnecessarily and tragically high. And that can still be avoided. That decision rests with Hamas, whether it's going to surrender, and on the international community, whether it is going to help civilians get to safety or try to keep them in a Hamas stronghold and play along with Hamas's sick human shield strategy. Unreal. Uh, as you said at the start, you have a difficult job, but I'd like you to thank you for taking the time to join me and explain what Israel's doing and why and wish you all the best in the coming days and, and peace eventually for everyone. Thank you. In the yes. The day after Hamas. For that to happen, Hamas has to go. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Full Comment is a post-media podcast. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. You can listen to the Full Comment podcast on Apple Music, on Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, leave a, a rating or a review for us, and make sure you tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.